welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston. Today I am joined by our Executive Director, Oliver Hartwich, to discuss our new report, Prescription for Prosperity, a briefing for the incoming government. As I'm sure we all know, in a few weeks' time, New Zealand will go to the polls, and I think Oliver and I agree that this will be quite an historic moment for New Zealand. I think there's a very clear choice between the directions being signalled by our major parties and also the kinds of negotiations that will have to take place after the election to form a new government will be interesting. And into that morass, we have thrown some ideas, not just random ideas, but ideas that are based on 10 years of our reports of research in public policy. And we believe that they're coherent ideas that hang together into a broad vision for the future of this country, for equality, and for democracy. So with that introduction, Oliver, tell us, where have these ideas come from? You've been executive director here for all of this time. What's the guiding principle behind this manifesto? Well, this is our alternative manifesto for the 2023 election, and it is based on everything we have done at the initiative since 2012. We were founded in 2012, of course. We started with an empty sheet, and we started thinking about the future of this country. And we initially started with just a few areas of research. We looked into education from the very beginning. We looked into housing affordability. We looked into foreign direct investment. That was 2012. These topics are still very current today. But we've expanded them over the years, and we've included more and more topics. The welfare state transport, climate change, local government. In total, we have 21 chapters in our Prescription for Prosperity, the document we have released today. And we're looking at all of these areas to find answers to the most pressing challenges New Zealand experiences. And we also want to have solutions to create a better, more prosperous country for the future. So this document really brings together practically everything we've written. If you take all our publications, you upload them to a big AI and ask it, what is the essence? It would be something like Prescription for Prosperity, a comprehensive plan for a better New Zealand. Well, one of the things that I see when I read through this document is a strong element of localism in it. Of course, there's a chapter on local government and empowering local government. And one of the things that we're recommending is that local government be given a share of GST revenue. Yeah. As you say, you detect elements of localism, but probably not just in the local government chapter. No, indeed, throughout. Throughout. It's there in the health chapter. it's, It's there in the housing chapter. And may I say that this is not a coincidence? Because <laughs> I think this is one of our guiding philosophies, really, here. We, since our start in 2012, I have always been a great believer in bottom-up solutions and asking communities what they want and, and really listening to people on the ground rather than trusting faraway bureaucracies. This is a common feature, actually, in my think tank career, whether I worked in London or Sydney or now here. I never trusted these central bureaucracies, and I always thought that the solutions can be found on the ground. So if you see localism applications in our manifesto and prescription for prosperity, this is probably where it's coming from. Because over the years, I've always told all our researchers to listen to people on the ground and not just to draft something on a whiteboard somewhere far away. So... 
this is not just something for local government. This is something that applies to education. This is something that applies to health as well. So localism is clearly one of our guiding philosophies and principles. And that seems to me closely related to the idea of using markets to determine what people are choosing and to determine prices and things like that, because that's a very distributed way of calculating these things as opposed to central control. And again, not a coincidence because over the years we have employed some really good economists here at the initiative. And most of our economists, colleagues and friends have been inspired by economists, other economists like Friedrich Hayek and the idea that you cannot centralize knowledge, that knowledge is distributed and that you cannot ever bring this together in one single body. So we had very well-qualified economists working on these policies. And again, you can see the influence across all our 21 areas of research. So I would say we have a liberal prescription, a bottom-up description, and prescription for prosperity and for how to design policies. If we think of the antithesis of that, it's the centrally controlled bureaucracy. And I, I suppose we can think of two arms to that. And we might hope that the incoming government as the executive arm will adopt a lot of what we've got in this prescription for prosperity. The other part of it, of course, is the public service that has to implement it. And we have a chapter on the public service in here, and it seems to me a very key one, because whoever the government is after October the 14th, they're going to have to implement their policies through the public service. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about public service reform, because I think it's a very key area in, in what we're recommending. Yeah, it's um, one of those areas with which you probably will struggle over dinner conversations because people don't think this is um, particularly sexy, but we think it's mm. really important. The key term actually in the word or in the term public service is service. So meaning that the public service should actually serve. Currently, we wonder whether it actually serves in a sense that it doesn't really serve the government of the day, but it actually serves its own purposes and its own interests. And we are concerned that a future government, a reform-minded government, would find that a stumbling block because it would encounter a public service that is so steeped in its ways that it would make any reform really difficult, that it might actually try to thwart reforms, reform efforts. And therefore, we believe that we need to ensure that there is a primacy of the elected government with the democratic legitimacy of that election behind it so that the public service actually serves that government of the day rather than implement its own agenda. So just in very simple terms, can you tell listeners what should an incoming government do to ensure that its policies actually are enacted by a public service who is serving it as the government of the day and through it the people of New Zealand? What, what do we need to do with the public service to make it more responsive and more of a service? Well... The clearest example I think we can find anywhere is probably in your field, Michael, and that's education. So when you look at the Ministry of Education, this is now an institution that has grown to about 4,500 people. It clearly has its own set of values, independent of the government of the day, and they've given us their prescription, really, over the last decades, um, where they believe in greater centralization, where they believe in certain pedagogies where they believe in student-led learning, where they don't believe in a knowledge-rich curriculum, where they believe in all sorts of other things. And the idea now to turn this around 
from a political point of view, is really difficult because they will always work against that because they are coming from that background. They will probably also find it very hard to change after decades of going in that other direction. So what we argue in the document is actually that we should ensure that there is enough political control and leadership over these ministries so that the public service actually serves the government of the day and not the other way around. But how? What what ought a prime minister, because ultimately it's going to be the prime minister and the cabinet who have to make these decisions, how can they bring a public service that's going its own way to heal and see that it does what it should? Well, there are many ways in which you could reform the public service, and I think the most comprehensive reform packages will probably take a lot of time. But you have to start somewhere. And as a starting point, we should probably just take back some of the changes made in the 2020 Public Service Act um, and in the reforms of that act, which actually elevated the position of the Public Service Commissioner and effectively established a public service community of chief executives as a kind of a rival cabinet almost. Mm. And so take that back, actually reduce the role of the Public Service Commission, reduce the role of the Public Service Commissioner, and then we can talk a bit about more about how we want to implement this in practice, we could probably take the Public Service Commission into the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I mean, frankly, I wonder whether we even need a Public Service Commission, but that's probably for another day. In any case, what we have to do is we have to ensure that the government ministers, the Prime Minister, can actually govern for what they are elected. Indeed. And, you know, we've identified, I think, well, as you said, 21 different areas throughout the the report. But perhaps three key areas where we're identified the source of a lot of poverty and inequality and other social ills are in the areas of education, health and housing. Yep. These are three absolutely key areas for opportunity. If people can't afford housing, then they can't get anywhere in life. If they've got a poor education, they're similarly hamstrung. And of course, Health is health issues afflict us all through our lives, and when they do, we want to know that the taxes we pay to have a public health system are going to result on us being looked after in a, in a reasonable way, in a, in a timely way. Yeah, and we could probably spend hours talking about all of them, but maybe just to go through them in a nutshell form. In housing policy, we could see actually how our centralized country doesn't work. And we've argued this throughout our 11 years at the initiative, that we think one of the main problems really for housing in New Zealand is that we have centralized government tax revenue, and we have still asked councils to please provide the infrastructure for any newcomers that they might get. And that hasn't worked, because what we have done is actually we have um, separated the benefits and the costs of development. And therefore, it was only rational for councils not to build because that way they could save on infrastructure expenditure they would have otherwise had to undertake. And that's why we have one of the world's least affordable housing markets. So we've argued this over the years in many, many publications. And so this is one of our key prescriptions, really, for prosperity to change that. When it comes to education, I mean, that's your own field. I'm not telling you anything new. 
we think the country has gone in the wrong direction. We have actually focused too much on things like child-led learning, where we should actually go back to the basics of how we used to do this traditionally, where we have teachers who actually know what they're teaching and how where teachers actually impart their knowledge on the students. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd probably put it a little differently than going back to what's traditional, because that had its problems too, actually. And, and now we have a wealth of evidence from learning science that tells us much more than we knew, at least in a, in a scientific sense, than we did 50 years ago. And yet, as a recent survey of teacher education courses shows that we undertook for a new report, none of them actually focus on that knowledge. And, and so our teachers are entering the classroom without what they could have, which is state-of-the-art the knowledge about how children learn and how Absolutely. to apply it in the classroom. Well, you could probably also put it differently. Now, because of that recent research on how the brain works, we know why previous methods worked. When True. At the, when at the time we didn't even know why they worked, but they did. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think that's that's reasonable comment. We won't go into too much detail about that because there are so many other areas to talk about. But I would just say again, in the area of education, I think we can exploit localism a lot more. There are already initiatives being undertaken by schools and communities of schools in teacher education and curriculum development, even in qualifications, where these communities have become fed up with not being led by the ministry and they've decided to take matters into their own hands and some of them are doing an excellent job. So I think what we'd like to see is more of that but also measurement and evaluation to find out which initiatives are working so that they can be promoted and promulgated. That's absolutely true and by the way that's also the parallel with health because in health unfortunately over the last few years we also had more centralizing reforms where we Dissolve the district health boards where everything is now centralized in two organizations, one for um, Maori and then one for the rest of New Zealanders. But nevertheless, it's a centralization of a health system that didn't work particularly well before, but certainly doesn't well now. And so rather than going that path of more centralization, of more control from Wellington, we should do the other way and we should actually trust communities more. We should actually bring this down back to the people it's supposed to serve. Yes, well, that seems to make it more democratic as well. And at least last time I looked, our country is supposed to be a democracy. Yeah, apparently it is, except in the last years, of course, um, we had a one-party majority in parliament, which is not supposed to happen under MMP. So we have a strange kind of democracy in a way, because we don't really have the checks and balances you find in many other countries. So there's no second chamber, there is no written constitution, there is no proper constitutional court. Um we're not a federal system. We are not so a federal we're, we're system. We're not balanced by states or provinces. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't have localism. We have a very weak local government service sector. And therefore, um, yep, we are a democracy, but a very unusual one, and especially one where if you have the fluke result of a one-party majority, an MMP, with no coalition negotiations and no coalition partner to take into account, then it is a very strange kind of democracy where basically one party can do whatever it likes without any great checks and balances for three years. Yes. And of course, to make anything happen, you need money, you need resources. And that brings us to another really important point in the prescription of prosperity, which is how to make actually make the country prosperous again in a financial sense. We're much more in debt than we were five years ago. It's not clear at the moment how are we going to get out of that? So can you briefly 
talk about the way in which our ideas will help a government which is going to come in no matter who wins to all sorts of financial headaches what should they do to help us return to a path of surplus and paying down the national debt instead of getting deeper into it I think generally speaking what we have seen over the last few years we have lost the discipline of checking our spending proposals so there was a time not so long ago where spending proposals were typically subjected to a cost-benefit analysis. And you had to actually make a good case for spending, and otherwise it wouldn't happen. I don't think we have done this over the last few years. We have just basically thrown out money left, right, and center. And sometimes you wonder whether the government agencies, in particular Treasury, even have the capability of doing proper cost-benefit analysis anymore. So we need to get back to that system where we actually check whether things spend make sense, whether there is value for money. The other thing that we need to get back to is, of course, Bill English's social investment approach, where right. we take into account the long-term consequences of government spending, but not just spending, government decision-making, where we look really beyond uh, the immediate effects of uh, government intervention, but look long-term, where does government um, most gainfully spend money to actually Im influence outcomes positively over long periods of time? That was the gist of the social investment approach, and I think we need to get back to that. Yes. And beyond that, a proposal that we have been making since, I believe, 2014 or 15, we should have a watchdog for spending, a fiscal council, if you like. We've always suggested this might be an office of parliament, but in any case, it should be some uh, semi-independent arms-length authority to really look at government and treasury and provide independent advice. Well, I was going to say, I thought it was called the treasury, the, the, the agency that was supposed to do that. Yes, it was once upon a time the treasury, but we are not particularly convinced by what we have seen from treasury over the last, say, 10 years, actually going back to a time when National was still in office. So I think actually having an independent fiscal watchdog has real value. You can actually see the application of such a watchdog in the Office for Budget Responsibility in the UK, which was an, another office that I had something to do with because the proposal initially came out of the think tank I worked for. I think it would be valuable having such an institution here just to ensure that our fiscal forecasting is really correct and that we're not just giving in to some political whims. And then B, uh, there is value for money in what we do. One thing that some people might some people might find odd when they look through our report and read about our ideas about taxation, for example, is that we're recommending that there be no increases in tax or no new taxes introduced. Now, of course, tax has been something that's been bandied around a fair bit during this election campaign with Labor first ruling out a capital gains tax or a wealth tax and, and then saying they want to remove GST from fruit and vegetables. And a lot of these things seem to shoot from the hip during a, an election campaign. I think it might be worth just explaining why raising tax can sometimes lead to less government revenue rather than more. Hmm. Well, that connection between the level of tax and government revenue is well known among economists and actually I believe you can even go back to ancient Egypt to find the first records actually showing that there is a link between the two. Um, so this is one of the well-established principles of economics that when you tax 
too much when you tax too highly, actually the tax revenue drops because um, some activities that are now too highly taxed simply don't happen anymore. Right. Or, or people take their money and go away. Exactly. And this um, link became known as the Leffer Curve in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. Apparently, Arthur Leffer once wrote it down on a napkin during a dinner with Ronald Reagan and explained that actually if you increase the tax rate up to a point, you get more tax revenue, but once you increase it beyond that point, actually tax revenue falls again. So I'm not saying New Zealand is on that point of the Leffer curve, but what I would say is that New Zealand doesn't have a revenue problem at the moment. We're taxing a lot. We're taxing a lot by historic standards. Looking back just over the last 10, 20 years, we're taxing more than back then, not least, of course, because we haven't had indexation of tax bends. Mm. So it's much easier to get into a higher tax bracket at the moment. So I don't think we, the government has a revenue problem. The government has a spending problem. Right. We are spending way too much, and we're spending way too much on stuff that doesn't add up, that doesn't actually yield any value. So that's where we get back to cost-benefit analysis. So rather than trying to find more sources of government revenue to fund the next few projects, let's just look what projects actually really make sense, and then let's try to find a way to live within our means. Indeed. So I'd invite everybody to have a good read of this prescription for prosperity before they cast their votes at this year's election. Have a good think about the kind of New Zealand you want to live in. And, you know, sometimes the New Zealand initiative might be accused of being a bit gloomy. We, we often call out what's wrong with things. But I think here we've really got a vision for the, for the future that is inspiring. And I think we need to look ahead with hope you know, Christopher Luxon has been caught on a mic saying that he thinks the country has lost its mojo. And, you know, maybe he's right. But in the end, a lot of our problems are, are cultural rather than anything else. If, if people believe that the country can be prosperous, then that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If they believe that it's going down the drain, then that can too. And it can lead to, you know, bright minds heading overseas when we desperately need them to stay and... Uh, it can lead to people not taking the kinds of risks that are required to really build up a, a vibrant economy and society. So, Oliver, what would you say about that? Do you look ahead with hope for, for New Zealand? Well, I would look ahead with hope if parties just took our prescription for prosperity and stole its ideas shamelessly. All of them. All of them. Um, because they All are, the parties and all the ideas. All the parties and all the ideas. No, seriously. This is a comprehensive reform package. If we got half of that implemented, it would make the future for New Zealand a lot brighter. Although it's perhaps difficult to implement half of it because it's also interlocking. So hopefully they'll... Well, um, I would encourage the parties <laughs> to just start with half because the other half will follow, follow almost automatically. That's a good point. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Oliver, and... All those listeners out there, get, get a hold of the prescription for prosperity and, and have a good read. And we'll see you soon. Bye.